You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 122, Pornography, a Public Health Crisis, Part 2. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And we are back for our second part of our two-part conversation on pornography as a public health crisis. Uh, Sandy, in the last episode, number 121, Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about just what's going on, what's the impact on youth, what are some of the cultural impacts, and we made mention of uh, the term public health crisis, but we didn't really go into the detail of that, and today we're going to go into the detail of that, and uh, and this is a place where I know you really have a unique unique skill set and experience um, as a nurse as well in thinking about this broadly and you mentioned something to me just a few minutes before we recorded of like of of talking about public health crisis and saying oh there's a couple of key aspects of this uh that are so important and i had heard of none of them (laughs) so i was like this is good because this will teach me more about um thinking about public health crises and 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 more broadly what that means but also specifically how that relates to pornography so i'm really interested in learning more about this and finding out more about how you think about this from a healthcare standpoint too well i hope in the last episode that we established clearly the case that uh, pornography is problematic for our communities it does end up in increasing um, psychopath behaviors, aggressive behaviors, um, sexual violence, violence against women, um, those kinds of things. But also, um, this is not a a gender issue. This is not about just commodifying women or, or any of that. This is detrimental to young men and young women alike. We established young women are beginning to view pornography at alarming rates, and it depends on whose research, but anywhere from 28 to 35% of, of teens are actually doing porn searches on their... Teen on, women, by the way. Teen not, women. Not just teen, teen women. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and, and then, you know, on through the the generations, all the way, um, you know, uh, they have statistics on on 60 and 70 year olds, male and females and the porn searches. And, and in case you think that someone is targeting you specifically looking for your porn habits, um, big data collects little bits of information that can then be um, used so that when you're on your social media app, uh, they advertise the very brand of, of, athletic shoe that you wear and tell you that there's a sale and it's not very far from you and they give you the name of the mall and you're and you're like how did they get that it's the same kind of big data i can't explain it i know it happens and i set all my privacy settings to the best of my ability but big data is 
um, able to put together those kinds of, of scenarios. So when, when you look at, at pornography data, and it tells you there are 12 videos per person on the face of the earth um, this year that are porn- pornographic, um, I know this is a big problem. And all of those clicks are tabulated somewhere out there in cyberland, and they know how many came from the state of California, from the county of Orange, from the city of Irvine. And I, um, I know that it is very distressing for the, from the perspective of privacy. But for those of us looking at public health, that kind of big data gives us a window into how we can predict and protect. And those are two of the, the really important concepts around public health. If you think about um, malaria, it's a mosquito-borne disease. And so we know that mosquitoes need water. So when we're trying to reduce the incidence of mosquito of malaria, we reduce the incidence of mosquitoes. So we make sure that there are no puddles around the house and we try to keep areas dry so that that we can limit the impact. So how do we make things safer around our homes when it comes to um, the incidence of young children inadvertently um, seeing inappropriate material? And actually, you all know that one of my favorite apps or websites is NetSmarts, and they have constantly updated basic internet safety. And it inclu- it's very inclusive. It's not just about pornography, but cyberbullying, online predators, revealing too much information, and exposure to inappropriate material. And one of the things you need to know is that 95% of your teenagers, of our teenagers, 12 to 17 are online. 95%. So it would be... Um, a smart thing for us to do basic internet safety with them. So if you think from a predict and protect, if I'm telling you 95%, then once you're one of your kids turns 12, you've got a 95% prediction that they're going to be online when you're not looking. How do you protect them? So you're going to become a regular subscriber to the NetSmarts workshops. Yeah, well, forget 12. Uh, Our four-year-old can navigate the Netflix app better than I can, and it's not caused any problems so far that we know of. We're very careful about that, but it starts really early as far as how... how ubiquitous the internet has become mm. it just in our households and how accessible it is. And that is wonderful in so many ways for our lives and has created so many wonderful things. I mean, we are being able to do this podcast right now right. because yeah. of the internet. And that's an amazing thing. And it's impacted my life in wonderful ways and, and my wife's uh, life and, and our children too. And like any wonderful, great, ubiquitous thing in the world, it also brings its problems along with it. And this is one big one. And so uh, this isn't a show on don't 
use the internet. Right. That's <laughs> which right. Which wouldn't be smart. No, because and we want you to sign up and take one of our online anti-trafficking courses. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so you can you learn go. a lot more about it. And so, the, I mean, I think it's it's easy sometimes to look at this and be like, okay, well, just, you know, turn off internet access in your house or whatever. And that's just, that's not realistic. That's, um, you, you're going to find other way, people are going to find other ways to connect with the internet. Um, I, I think about Sandy, uh, you know, my, my mom had a very strict rule for us when we were kids that she did not like cartoons in general, but very specifically did not like the cartoons that had the, any kind of violence or guns or anything like that. And, um, and of course, none of our friends, a very few of our friends had family subscribed to that same philosophy. They were like, Oh, cartoons are fine. So, you know, as a child, I learned pretty quickly. I could just go watch GI Joe, whatever, over at the friend's <laughs> house. So that was pretty, this is like the, you know, the new, the new, this is obviously a much different situation, but some of that is, is the same of, um, we need a better strategy than just thinking through like, okay, I'm going to turn off access or we're not going to, we're going to put up these barriers. Um, there's an education component here. That's so important. And that's what the center is all about is study the issues, be a voice and make a difference. And so that's what we're here to do on this show today. So let's look at a few of the things that we can predict. Um, these are the health issues that our experts have shown us that we should be paying attention to. Dr. Sharon Cooper, um, forensic pediatrician, uh, well-respected in this area. She explains that mirror neuron research reveals that multiple areas of the brain respond to visualized images and these respond to what we are seeing, liking what we see, wanting what we see, getting what we see, dopamine, serotonin, internet addiction. Now, this isn't just for pornography. Uh, this is how shopping addictions are, are created as well. So we have to predict these are the components that contribute to a physiological addiction and then we predict this can happen, we need to protect from it. So we don't want to have those kinds of images that will contribute to that addiction. So then we're looking at um, protection. But what if, what if you're not a kid? What if this is an adult or um, a young adult, 18 to 24? Um, how do we begin to protect our, our young people, when they're at a stage in their development where addictions um, are, are more, um, these are the, the, this is the age when many of those addictions become more of a problem and they begin to develop those addictions. The, um, Dr. Hilton, who also was at the, the Capitol Hill hearing that we mentioned in the last issue, he explains that addiction alters the brain the brain can change and either um, do change for the good or bad by learning. So by the same token, we can predict harm. We can also predict that there are ways to teach that would do good in this particular area. When we look at um, um, the link that you mentioned about sex trafficking and 
pornography, Dr. Laura Letter, another one of our favorite researchers from Washington, D.C. Indeed, and past guest several, yes, several past times. guest and regular at our Ensure Justice Conference. Um, she's established very clearly that there is a link between sex trafficking and pornography. And we are actually putting together a webinar um, with the Religious Alliance Against Pornography on the link between sex trafficking and pornography in September. That's when that will air, and we'll keep you informed about that. But the idea that we can predict means that people who are fighting human trafficking, if they understand the link between pornography and sex trafficking, then they should probably be thinking about what strategies do they have in place to protect the community where they're trying to do prevention. And prevention is always much better than rescue and restoration. It's it um, it's less expensive. Grandma always said an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Yeah, for sure. So um, the d- Dr. Um, uh, Victor Klein has described the actual addictive process into four parts. And it begins first, the person compulsively views pornography. Second is the escalation, seeks progressively harder core pornography. Third is desensitization. I think this is the part that is the most disturbing for me. With desensitization, the tolerance increases to progressively explicit materials. In the early stages, there's a sense of, yeah, this is wrong. Oh, um, I I should stop this. But in the desensitization, it's much um, more acceptable and normalized. And it becomes um, less significant on the scale of what makes me feel guilty or shameful. The desensitization tolerance increases to explicit material. And then four, and this is where um, the community needs to sit up and pay attention because the fourth part of the process is acting out sexually, acting out fantasies viewed in the pornography, prostitution, adultery, um, uh, commercial sex, um, the idea of that pornography now represents younger and younger um, participants. So there is a, a normalization of sex with minors in the depictions. And then the term that I just can hardly bring myself to use, child pornography. Child pornography isn't legal. Pornography is in many places, but child pornography is illegal because these are minors. And yet even even, um, adult legal pornography depicts children. And so there's a, there's a line there that contributes to what Dr. Klein includes in his addictive process. So the four, the four steps are addiction, escalation, desensitization, and acting out. We can predict that. So how do we protect? One, um, one particular group has suggested that we begin to have 12-step programs 
for sexual addiction that we many um, many faith-based groups have uh, celebrate recovery excuse me celebrate recovery which is an addiction um, mostly focused on people with substance abuse mm-hmm. and and kind of patterned after the AA model mm-hmm. um, there are programs that are being developed for that kind of restoration but uh, and restoration and rehabilitation has to be part of our public health model, but we also have to think about prevention and how do we protect people from ever becoming addicted. And I think part of it is is making sure that someone be, who begins watching pornography understands the risks for this kind of desensitization and and acting out what they've seen. Because at the beginning, it may seem um, much more harmless. And speaking of prevention, what are some of the things that are being mentioned now or research being done specifically when we think about those vulnerable ages, Sandy, of teenagers or maybe early adults? And um, what are the kinds of things that are looking promising as far as how to approach that. And we've talked about some of them, just net smarts and some of the, the education that's out there. Um, are there other things in addition to that, that are, that are emerging, that are helpful, that we're seeing a difference with? Well, one of we, you know, we're, if we stay on our predict and protect, one of the things we can predict is that pornography is handicapping our young people, our youth from developing healthy sexual self and it affects their attitudes and their behaviors. And so if you go back to um, the episode that we did on developmental assets, the best way to protect those kids is to make sure they develop healthy attitudes about their sexuality, um, that they have someone trusted that they can talk to with their with questions. If you start talking to a group of, of young adults and you ask them, um, about the conversations that they had with their mother or their father when they were um, entering their adolescence, when they were prepubescent, when they were pubescent. And most of the time, and I've just did this, I've tried this in a couple of classes recently, they all start laughing and their hands shoot up and they say, oh, it was about 90 seconds. Um, oh no, I was, I was already... A senior in high school, and I'd gotten all my questions answered by my friends and online. Um, but I sat there and let my dad tell me all about it anyway, because I knew it was really a, an important rite of passage for him as a father. <laughs> oh, Sorry wow. for laughing, but it is that's the common response. That's yeah. Common so, response and I challenge people. listeners: ask a room full of of seventeen to twenty one year olds. How did you learn about your sexuality? If I can give parents one word of advice, don't trivialize your child's sexuality. Don't use nicknames that you picked up from cartoons. Talk about how incredibly complicated and beautiful you are and how you're created. And this is something we can talk about in our home. And as long as you have those kinds of positive assets in your relationship, your child 
is protected to some extent from their personal engagement. The second part of protecting is monitoring their peers. And it's just like you, Dave, you found somebody who had those cartoons that your mom wouldn't let you watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we, we know in adolescent brain development that when your peers are around, we can measure the impact they have just watching you. And so making sure that that impact is happening in a safe place. When my kids were growing up, I wanted the party at my house. I love it that my daughter is exactly the same way. So anything that's going to happen with her kids, she's, she's there watching that peer energy happen. We can do the same thing with regard to the safety of our kids and um, where they are with their friends. Well, and this may be something that's part of NutSmart, Sandy. If not, though, I'm one of the things I, I'm guessing that some people wonder who our parents is. Okay, I buy into that. That makes sense. I'm willing to make that commitment to to have a, a to have a more healthy conversation in our household about this. Um, I think the next question is how. How? What's the framework for how to do that? Because unfortunately, as we've mentioned, a lot of us don't have good. We haven't seen good role models of that with you know our parents and their parents, and this just is not something that historically has been done well in most families. Um, where is the place to look for something like that? Is NetSmart an option, or are there other resources that are helpful for that too? I think I think other resources are out there. I'm I'm very excited. I mentioned previously the um, the Religious Alliance Against Pornography's webinar in partnership with Pure Hope, purehope.org, and um, Parenting in a Sexualized World. I think that there's going to be some great resources there. And when we talk about pornography, we sometimes marginalize the conversation based on um, a particular church background. And one of the things I like about um, RAP, Religious Alliance Against Pornography, is is that it is a, uh, a faith-based organization where um, multiple voices have come together and we all agree that pornography is a moral dilemma in our society. And it doesn't matter whether you're coming from a Christian perspective, a Buddhist perspective, Islamic, it is a moral dilemma. And we all have to figure out how to address this. And protecting the next generation is the first order of business. And so I'm looking forward to April 21st. And this is, um, we'll have a link to that, Parenting in a Sexualized World. Very good. And will there be a recording of that, uh, Made Sandy? Because I, I know believe. this episode, I think, will air after that. So do we? Uh, yes. We'll so see if we'll, we can track we'll, that down. We'll get that for you. We'll get that for you. Very good. Um, it, from a public health standpoint, is there anything else that um, that has framed, and you mentioned cigarettes and so, so many of the things that it, it, society has come to recognize as, as you know, <laughs> um, real health challenges, although that wasn't the case 50 years ago on some of these other issues. Um, and I'm curious what other lessons we can pull from those kinds of things where, you know, t- the tide has really changed over time. Even people who smoke cigarettes today 
would admit that you know, they know it's not good for yeah. them and they just, you know, mm-hmm. they've, for whatever reason, they've decided to do it or they've uh, developed an addiction. Um, do we see that happening with pornography and are there things that we should be thinking about that would put pornography on that same path or, or, or that recognition as a public health issue? Well, I think, I think the fact that um, Utah passed the first legislative resolution that this is a public health issue. Um, we are, we are now on that path. I think also that from the, we've predicted now we're protecting, we do have to take those mechanical, um, steps to protect in our, in our home, uh, learn how to make sure that your wireless is safe for your kids, that the right filters are on and those kinds of, of um, technological things. If you don't know how to do it, you get somebody in your home that can set that up for you. There's ways to filter. It, you're not going to block everything, but it's kind of like getting on the freeway. That speed limit sign assures you some safety from crazy people. Yeah. Or, you're the, still or buying get, the car with the airbags, you know, yeah, uh, 10, so, 15 years so ago. So you've got to do everything you possibly can. And that means you check your kids' electronic devices. These belong to to me, and it's my right to check them out. Um, if you if you have to, you turn your wireless off at night and and then you can monitor if the kids are using data. And some homes, they, they get a, a data allowance. I was like, oh my goodness, I could never have even conceived of that when my kids were little. But yeah. you get a data allowance. Who'd have thought? Um, monitoring I, social networks? Yeah, just, I mean, just, I'm just thinking, Sandy, of pe- people we know who have kids that are older than us. Of, of They have, many of them have very good policies on, you know, the, the phone doesn't go in the room and, and mm-hmm. it's not there at night. And, there is a checkpoint of, you know, I'm going to go through and I'm going to look at your text messages. And and it's understood in the family that that's, I mean, it's not a surprise. It's not done as a surprise. It is just the understanding of this is how things work in our family until you reach a certain age and you're you know at a certain responsibility level. And gradually that responsibility gets greater as time goes on and habits are developed. Um, but I, that strikes me as really sensible in a lot of cases on how to approach this. And it the key is in many of those cases, Sandy, is, you know, regardless of where you land on the specific how you handle that in a family is it's being talked about. Right. There's a conversation about it and there's an understanding and there's expectations around how all that's going to be handled. And let me just give you a quick list of some places where you can go to find resources like that. Netnanny.com, um, Covenant Eyes. I've already mentioned NetSmarts. And I did mention Pure Hope, and I gave you the wrong extension. It's purehope.net, not .com. Purehope.net. I was going to say, I was on purehope.org, and it is a similar site, but not the same. Not the same, <laughs> so yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a, what do I do if I'm pregnant? And I was like, that's not no, quite. No, that's not it. Purehope.net. Ah, uh, yes. This and looks their, their focus, much yes, much better. Um, there's also... Um, several resources on the National Council of Catholic Women. The U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops just released some new resources for helping families protect their children. Safeline.org, or no, it's not Safeline. It's S.A. Lifeline, Protecting Families, and it has a, a lot of resources. So there are resources. Many of them are free. Uh, some you can subscribe to services. 
always though, going back and reevaluating what protections you have in place. It's like just when you, when you get insurance, every once in a while you go back and re, re, um, revisit that. Indeed. Well, this is great, Sandy, because not only I think have we looked at the broader issue, but we've also got some really good resources. And um, it strikes me just listening to that list and looking at a couple of the websites here and pulling them up as you were talking to them that um, there's a lot more than there was even a couple of years ago the last time we had this conversation. And there's a lot more great resources. There's new challenges, of course, too. But there's also, again, to the to our conversation about the internet. The internet has lots of great things, too. There's lots of wonderful things out there that are helpful to you and your family and community. So utilize those and, uh, and, um, and we'll make a list of those so we can get them here on the website and the show notes. So thank you so much for the perspective on that, Sandy. And, um, and, and speaking of resources, another way, as we talked about earlier in this episode, that you can equip yourself with especially studying the issues and being a voice and making a difference is through the anti-human trafficking certificate. We've talked about that right. in a couple of recent episodes. And so uh, if that's something that if if you found that this podcast is helpful to you, not just this episode, but this podcast in general, um, that's a great next step on furthering your expertise in this area and being a voice that can really go out in the world and make a difference. And if that is something that is of interest to you, you can find a lot more information on our website. And the address for that is vanguard.edu slash GCWJ. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice. And you'll find uh, the anti-human trafficking certificate information there in a link on the left-hand side. And we'd love to hear from you if you're a professional working in social work, in the healthcare field, in in law, if there are specific subjects that you would like us to offer courses online, please drop us a note and let us know because that will help us decide what's next. And that's uh, and a great way to do that, by the way, is to send us an email. And that's a, that's an easy way to get in touch. GCWJ at Vanguard.edu is our address. Again, that's for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University of Southern California. And you can also reach us by phone 714-966-6360. Sandy, always a pleasure to chat with you. And thanks, thanks Dave. For, uh, thanks for a great conversation the last two episodes here. And we've got more coming in two weeks. See you soon. Take care.